And I'm going to go kind of quickly. I know you've had a lot of incoming information coming in. I'm going to engage you in a concept that we've been talking about at UNL. I've talked with my, uh, I want to describe this project as a work in progress. I've talked to friends and colleagues uh, ad nausea about it and uh, anxious to share it with all of you. Um, and I invite you, as you listen to what I have to say, to reflect on the proposal and offer any additional insights or critiques uh, that you might have. And if you're interested, I look at my colleague from the University of Nebraska-Omaha, to be thinking about a learning co uh, collaborative and, and how we might engage in this work together. Um, I don't think any of us would disagree that we're living in the age of big data. Um, we're um, trying to harness analytic tools or an, an identify the analytic tools necessary to harness streams of data to generate reliable predictive models. There's a difference between forecasting and predicting. And I read in a book by Eric Siegel that forecasting is saying in the middle of the summer in Nebraska, there's going to be a lot of ice cream sales. Uh, predicting is determining who's going to buy those um, ice cream cones. Um, it's happening around us all the time, right? Netflix recommendations. You build a history um, if you're a Netflix user and they start to identify and recommend to you patterns and trends based on your choices. Grocery store coupons are based on your pattern buys. Uh, we belong to the gas um, incentive at Hy-Vee and I swear my husband is changing his patterns of, of purchasing power just because he's lured by the 10 cents off on per gallon whether he needs the product or not. Tailored social media content. There was a lot in the during the run-up to the election about what's being pushed to us through Facebook. Online dating sites. Student success right now, higher education is spending a lot of time talking about how we can use predictive analytics to better improve student retention and graduation. And crime hotspots. Uh, UNLPD does a lot of this. Um, Upper right-hand corner is hotspot showing where students party in the community. Bottom right-hand corner is bar hotspot at uh, bar close. And the white uh, triangles are uh, the cluster of establishment. And then the, um, the, the uh, picture on the left-hand side is concentration of incidents, one at day and one at night in our football games, in our football stadium. And the interesting thing about that, over time, they've been able, again, to harness that data to predict where to deploy resources based on four factors, time of game, time of year, opponent, and the temperature, because those are the four primary data points that predict where they're going to need people. Um, as many of you have know, I'd like to share this slide with students, because the uh, picture on the far left is night incidents, and you can probably guess where the more youthful members of the stadium sit. That would be in the bottom, but the upper left-hand corner is where faculty and staff sit. So I don't know what they got going on, but students like to, I like to point that out to students. Um, I think, I suspect that those are more late, late afternoon games when the temperature is so hot, we're dying of exhaustion up there, of heat exhaustion. But predictive analytics is nothing more than technology that learns from experience. 
data to predict the future behavior of individuals in order to drive better decisions. What data do we have available to us to help predict high-risk environments and are students at risk for alcohol-related harm? More importantly, if we knew it, what would we do with it? And several of us in this room already have access to a tool that allows us to do that, and that's the year one college, college alcohol profile. For those of you, and Tom references a lot, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but the Y1CAP is a web-based brief motivational intervention you already heard from Tom that's identified as highly effective in both the NIAAA tiers of effectiveness and the college aim. Feedback includes quantity, frequency of consumption, blood alcohol levels, comparison of self-reported consumption and attitudes with local norms, feedback on risk factors and behaviors. And at UNL and at NCC schools, we're using it as a pre-enrollment prevention strategy. UNL has been administering the uh, Y1CAP as a pre-enrollment prevention strategy since the academic year of 2009-2010. It's administered in the summer. Our feedback includes additional information around protective strategies, community campus alcohol policies and law, uh, laws, and resources. More recently, working with Jan Deeds, um, we have included a subset of questions from the Rape Myth Acceptance Survey. It's a soft mandate, meaning that students receive an email from the Vice Chancellor asking them to complete the Y1CAP. Our response rate has been anywhere from 80 to 85%, which I think is fairly amazing in a class of incoming class of 5,000, which means that we have quite a few data points to work with, both over time and in any one individual year. And Duane Shell just finished uh, writing a paper on this, and he's allowed me to share some of our findings. We looked at the cohorts of 2011 and 2012 and looked at their academic and their law enforcement contact behavior across their college career. And we found that the, uh, the uh, Y1, those that completed the Y1 cap, we saw an increase in student retention and a decrease in student incidence of alcohol-related campus and community violations. In fact, the difference in retention between the completers and the non-completers translates into approximately $1.5 million annually. That's a significant chunk of change at UNL. And the completers were involved in 50% fewer on-campus and 50% fewer, 50 fewer off-campus violations. Again, we're talking about a significant number of data points. We're very excited about those findings, and that paper should be available uh, soon. Um, we have been using this data and sharing this data. This is Y1CAP comparison data across three years. As you can see, we're looking at Greek respondents and non-Greek respondents in the years 2014, 2015, and 2016. I'd like to point out, and we've been sharing this with uh, the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life, and then when we dive a little bit deeper, we share it with fraternity and sorority advisors that typically across time, the binge re rate among those who either have already joined joined the Greek system or have expressed an interest in joining the Greek system is about double of their non-Greek um, peers. This is what it looks like when we do a deeper dive in a chapter-by-chapter -chapter fraternity comparison. 
Linda and I and John worked on this together last year. This is a comparison and I only gave you the top five or about 25% of our fraternities, those that 25% that were above the all men Greek average, which was a binge rate of 47.5 last year. And I'll point out that with group A, which was a, a quite a significant um, number of responses, there were zero abstainers and their total binge rate for that incoming class was 85.5%. Last year, it was 65.5%. And when you think about the cluster of people who are now you know, living and playing together in that organization, it's fairly significant. We've shared this data with fraternities, with sororities, and to some limited, um, in a limited way, with our residence halls several years ago. But the only thing we really did is give it to them so that they could get a sense of where they might anticipate having problems. And there was really no prescription that we offered that might help them along their journey. This is what it looked like for sororities. And I only gave you about 33% of the top respondents who were above the all Greek women average of 26.6 in um, 2016, and as you can see, uh, the difference between non-Greek women and Greek women is a, a little bit smaller in that women in general coming into the university reported 18.7. But as you can see, we had five chapters, two in particular, that were almost double the binge rate of their incoming uh, non-Greek peers. I got very interested in this um, earlier this year. Um, I good friend and colleague Leslie Esters and I and Linda Schwarzkopf and UNLPD and Sue Moore, I think you were there. We all came together after uh, Matt Hecker identified a disturbing tend a, a trend of really high BACs. We track uh, transports anyway through our detox data, but last year seemed to be a particularly disturbing uh, year. So we did a deep dive in the first 20 transports during the 2016 fall semester. 19 of the 20 were first year students, 18 of those 19 were of those first year students were women. Most, and I would say all, <laughs> reported that they were drinking in their perception of fraternity parties in the bottoms. And I wanna say their perception because it may have been real and it may not have been real, but they went to a party that they perceived was a fraternity party. And 17 of the first year women transported had at least two or more new student enrollment subscale scores in the yellow or the red zone. And I want to thank my colleague, Ryan Fetty, who and I, and when we were together in the vice chancellor's suite, spent time talking about the correlation or the relationship between these NSC subscale scores and the, the students that they were seeing. So when we took a deep dive, I thought, isn't that interesting? Now we have another piece of data that we can sort of bring to the party that might help further refine these profiles of students. Let me just tell you real briefly, the NSC uh, subscales, there are five. One is academic motivation. The second is time management. The third is aptitude. The fourth is persistence or grit. And the fifth is around intention for involvement. So the thinking is, um, 
Let me just step back and say, so I did a research, I, I did a lit, a lit search. What do we do in academia when we're perplexed by a problem? Go to the literature and the library is one of my very favorite places to go. And lo and behold, I found an article entitled, Are There Cognitive Consequences of Binge Drinking During College? And for those of us who are in student affairs, the name Pascarella had me right away because he's a, a very famous author in terms of, and researcher in terms of student development theory. And there were a couple of things that came out of that article that I thought were really important for this project. Number one, the highest predictor of college binge drinking is pre-college binge drinking. And those of us who are administering the year one cap have access to that data. We also have it in combination with the rape myth acceptance scale. The second finding in that study, the second highest predictor of college binge drinking is pre-college academic motivation. Now I have that now, or we have that now through the NSC inventory, because pre-academic motivation is the first subscale that's captured. Again, followed by time management, aptitude, persistence or grit, and the student intent to become involved. So here's our next steps. And I'd love your, your feedback, I'd love your challenge, I'd love your questions. Our thought is, is that we'll be creating aggregate profiles for each one of the residence halls, every fraternity, and every sorority based on Y1 cap and NSE inventory data. We'll develop a menu of educational strategies and messaging options based on the aggregate profile. Let me give you some examples, and I'm sure there's plenty more out there. Jan and I have had some great conversations about if Prevent, which is her peer education group, has access to the aggregate profile of a particular living unit related to the rape myth acceptance scale. They have an opportunity to tailor their educational strategy in a very unique way. We have an opportunity to push protective behaviors in individual living units to maybe push back social norms. We certainly know what um, alcohol-related prevention and early intervention strategies work thanks to the college aim. So we could create this rich menu of options to offer residence hall directors, RAs, uh, fraternity and sorority advis advisors, so that they can t tailor um, educational strategies based on their particular environment. We could also consider environmental strategies within micro-environments. So every residential hall or the residential halls in general have policies, they have accountability, they have enforcement. So what things might be unique based on the data that they have? And an opportunity, I can tell you right now, we have halls in the campus whose drinking rates are far lower, far lower risk than other halls. So do we need to treat everybody the same or is there some unique um, aspects of our work that we can apply on a micro level? So we plan to meet with residence hall directors and Greek advisors to discuss practice applications and then do an administer a survey in the spring of 2018 to assess any change. That's the big picture. This is the first time I've talked about this publicly. Like I said, I have a handful of friends that are really tired of um, hearing me talk about it. We're really anxious to get off the dime. So I invite you to um, throw up your questions, offer your insights, your challenges, and more importantly, I'm looking for um, a learning collaborative that might engage in this work together. So, questions? 
curious about anything? Jamie. Yeah, uh, Jamie's question was about how are we going to do the uh, create the aggregate numbers, and we do have student ID numbers. We're also very transparent in the year one cap, letting students know that the information will be clustered in aggregate. So we've got a process that we've refined with uh, the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life to then analyze the data once we have the actual members that have joined. Same kind of thing with the residence halls. And Jamie, looking at you, this would be great information to share with your peer educators as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, right now, the way, the way we have written the disclosure written, no, um, for the Y1 cap. Now that said, with the NSE inventory, um, it's broken up into uh, a very simple uh, a system of red, yellow, and green. And we've been in conversations with residence halls where the RDs would have access to individual student data around their uh, sub-sales scores and be talking with them individually about that. But we wouldn't do it for this project. Leslie. I was hoping that the residence hall data could be available to you before the fall semester began. It's a little bit easier working with you than it is the Office of Fraternity and Sorority Life, not because they're difficult to work with, but because they're, they're processed. We have to wait till everybody has, uh, they've finished their membership list, and so we're always a little more delayed. But based on the timing of the NSC sub, of the inventory scores, and when it's completed, and where, when the Y1 cap is completed, we should be able to do that more quickly. Um, both are, let's see, the NSC, inventory will be pushed out prior to NSE. In fact, I think it was released in early April um, because you have to complete it before you can be enrolled in classes. That year one cap gets pushed out with some of the uh, requirements out of the Title IX uh, right after NSE concludes, and we leave it open for about a four to five week period. That's a really good question, um, Leslie. I would say two things about that. One is certainly happy to work with the educational, both the individual and the group level, to help start t tailoring those messages and make that part of that work. But the other thing, this project, similar to the work Tom was talking, will only be successful if it's nested in a more, uh, in the larger comprehensive set of strategies. So making sure that we've shored up you know, our, our comprehensive approach and then and, and centering this in the middle of it.
Right, and that's a really good point. I mean, um, Brigham, I guess at this point, um, and, and you can you know, let me know if you see this differently. I mean, we're taking data that, and hopefully by next year, the Y1 cap will be required as well. And so we will be taking the data that comes from an, an educational program that they're required to do, we'll be putting it in aggregate form, and then we'll be pushing it back out in both passive and active educational program that is already happening on campus. It will just be tailored to the unique needs of that individual living unit. So I think in terms of, get, of getting the investment of this target population will somewhat be at the, uh, be the responsibility of Jamie and her group and Jan and her group, and what are the strategies they use to engage the target population. We're just giving them more refined data to work with. Does that make sense? Reactions? I'm really, re I'm really um, interested in whether or not people think this, this is worth pursuing based on your experience with the Y1 CAT college student audience. All right. Well, oh, Ryan. No, intent for involvement has been on the um, has been on the survey since its inception, um, but traditionally it's been passed off to. Um, student involvement. And we've just been in conversations with student involvement to include this in the profile. Yeah, no. At this point, we're just going to experience, or we're going to experiment with the living units, see how it goes. This is really a pilot year, and then spread out from there. That's why I'm so glad that student involvement is here because we could talk, start talking about other groups once we're able to identify the ID numbers of those students that are have affiliated with any group. Jan. I think so too. And the other advantage that we have is that the year one cap is ours. We can continually innovate with the curriculum of the year one cap. I know Tammy and I and Jan have a meeting next week to talk about the rate myth acceptance questions. And are those the right questions that we want to be asking? And they get us what we want. I will tell you from uh, running the data from last year, of the four questions that are included, the one where students feel most conflicted is, is there really sexual misconduct? Can it really occur when both 
parties involved are intoxicated. So that's a place as an example that we would really want to reinforce that point because students are very conflicted about that. Well, I invite my colleagues from in Nebraska, uh, in the Nebraska Consortium to uh, reach out if you're interested. If you want to brainstorm other data sets that you have in your institution, this is going to be as unique as your own institution. Not everybody has the NSC inventory, but everybody has the Y1 cap. So I look forward to working with you. Thanks.